Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg. We're coming to you from Denver, Colorado. On this last Thursday of 2017, how exciting. Uh, how many of you have made New Year's resolutions or if you, or you've just made a vow to do things differently in 2018? If you need some help or if you want to give the gift of change to a friend, check out my book, Do Something Different for a Change. If you or someone you know is stuck and needs strategies to attain your goals in 2018, go to drpegradio.com books. Well, Living Well with Dr. Pegg is brought to you by SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education training with the only program of, it, of its type offering an accredited CEU issued by North Carolina State University. SSI Guardian is dedicated to helping us make our lives safer. Go to SSIGuardian.com. Tell them Dr. Pegg sent you. You know, one thing that affects our safety and well-being is drug addiction, and opioid addiction in particular has been getting a lot of attention lately. Uh, addiction to opioids is on the rise and considered a serious national crisis. Every day, more than 90 Americans die after overdosing on opioids. On today's show, you'll meet one woman who has a personal connection to the tragic statistic I just shared, and you'll also hear from an experienced mental health professional who will educate us about the devastating effects of opioid addiction. Uh, but they are both here to share their encouraging message that recovery is possible with help. Lorraine Hoover is an account executive with 20 plus years of sales leadership experience, and she was or also ordained as a prophet by Global, Global Change Network USA. And she's the founder of Rain's Expressions, a ministry for women. And after losing her baby brother to an opioid overdose less than a year ago, Lorraine founded the Raymond Roundtree Jr. Foundation, which is a Colorado nonprofit organization dedicated to providing affordable, transitional, and sustainable wraparound services to those individuals and family members impacted by the consequences of addictive drug use. And Lorraine is joined by Matthew Jarvis, a licensed addictions counselor who's been working in the mental health field since 2004 and he's currently the manager of clinical operations at UC Hospital, uh, the CEDAR, Center for Dependency Addictions and Rehabilitation Center. And Matthew is also active in the recovery community as an advocate for mental health services and reducing social stigma. Lorraine Hoover, Matthew Jarvis, thanks so much for being live in the studio with me today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Peg. Just a pleasure to have you both here. Thank you. Welcome. And Lorraine is a friend of mine. We yes. know each other. We um, attend the same church, Colorado Christian Fellowship, and both ordained by Global Change Network USA. Yes. And I just know you to be such a lovely, um, loving, uh, generous, compassionate person. And it's just an honor, privilege to have you on the show today. Thank you. And my sentiments for you as well. Oh, thanks. Um, just growing together mm -hmm. in Christ Amen. and um, seeing your our kids have grown yes. and all of that. So thank you, Peggy, you're, you're for quite the opportunity welcome. Quite to be welcome. on the show. And Matthew, I understand you're a family friend of Lorraine, and we'll get into how you all know each other and also a professional, mental health professional in your own right. We have a lot of things in common in terms of our passion for reducing 
stigma around mental health. There's a lot of things going on today in the news that kind of paint uh, people who are with, with mental illness sometimes in a really inaccurate, unfortunate light. Yeah. I'm happy to be here to talk about it with you as well. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Well, let's go ahead and um, invite our listeners uh, to also call in today. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, uh, particularly an opioid addiction, we would love to have you join our conversation today and offer you hope and encouragement. You can give us a call at 303-477-5600. Now, I shared a statistic at the beginning of the show uh, that there are 90 Americans who die from opioid overdoses every day, and that was just startling to me. Um, Can you give us a snapshot, um, Matthew or or Lorraine, um, on the prevalence of opioid use in the U.S.? We're just hearing so much about it in the news uh, today. Matthew? Well, I think that our what we're seeing at, at Cedar supports those mm-hmm. statistics, um, and not only that, the lethality of it, so people are dying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, la- as far as we know, one in three people either know somebody that's addicted or somebody's in their family, and so it's not um, hype. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real um, situation that's, um, because of the, the um, sophistication of the opiates that are out now, um, they're much more lethal, mm. and so, so, so yeah. I think that that your your statistics are are accurate. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And for for you, Lorraine, it's really not just about statistics and numbers on a page. It's really personal for you. You lost your baby brother Raymond uh, to opioid addiction. I did. I did. And through this process, I guess you. Um, I've learned to kind of be aware, and so what's devastating being a native from Colorado is the statistics that basically within every nine hours um, and 36 minutes, a person dies in Colorado. Wow. So it's it's right here in our backyard, and to know that I lost my brother um, who struggled for quite some time with drugs in general, and the crutch that took his life was opioids, um, was just an alarm that, for me, I took that pain and decided that um, I didn't have a choice. I was kind of called to this mission, and um, it kind of just the, the stars aligned, if you will, because Matthew is the expert, and our paths crossed because of the loss of my brother, and for Facebook, that kind of brought us back together, and through that, um, this mission of truly uh, bringing hope and saving at least another person's family life from a loss of a brother, a father, a son, um, to um, this epidemic um, or any drug addiction overdose is um, something that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Well, can you share kind of the the journey, the path to this unfortunate, tragic outcome that so many Americans, according to these statistics, uh, can relate to what you're going through and what your brother went through? Sure. I think for me, um, I guess overall, it goes way back to some things I didn't know that you find out after the fact. But um, my brother evidently had experience with drugs starting at the young age of 11. And, um, you know, with a Throughout our life, I noticed there was a problem when I was in college and he came up to stay with me for a period of time. And uh, he, I found him, I happened to open our, my bathroom door to my apartment, and he was um, sitting on the toilet.
toilet smoking a crack pipe. Mm. And that was the sounding alarm for me because I was not familiar with that drug myself being a college student. That was something, no, you just don't do. And at that age, you would do things kind of in a social setting. Mm. So when I saw that he was doing it alone, I was that was a cry for help. So that was our first intervention as a family. And from there, there had been several that had went on. And um, he had moved away um, for a good last part of his life, 15 years. So I can say he was basically a um, a functioning addict. Mm -hmm. Um, He had his own business. He was very successful. He had his seasons. He was a a wonderful person overall, but that crutch was still on his back. So he was a functioning addict, someone that's not on the street, somebody that, you know, was very educated, but would have his, I guess, valleys and, and, you know, heels of going in and out of, of truly, you know, living a a fulfillment, a fulfilled life, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, So with that, uh, it was, you know, January the 19th that we received a call from his fiance at the time. Just earlier this year? Yes. 2017? Yes. And um, at that point, you know, it was devastating. And that's my baby brother. So you don't, you can't, there's no words to describe how you feel, how you receive that. So the pain of the loss, I felt like I was supposed to do something that I didn't do enough. And as a, as a minister and as a prophet, I had spoken into his life and, and, and I told him it was either prison or death, the path that he was on. And that warning came to him right around November that I had given him that. So, of course, then I went through uh, feeling guilty and uh, maybe, you know, I shouldn't have said that or and then being angry. God, why didn't you stop it? All the times I prayed, why didn't you save him? Why? And through that, there's a journey and um, there's crosses to be bared. And it's through the pain that we find our purpose. So through that, my purpose now today is if I can just save one person, um, one sister from losing her brother, one mother or father, one friend, that would make a difference. And his lapse of having the capability to uh, continue support. He did go through like a six month program here and there, but he never stayed in it. And um, in finding out it was financially, he couldn't afford it. So my mission is to just be able to p- provide some type of platform that raises funds for those that can't afford it to be able to truly go through a full stint of a year at a minimum. Um, and it's a lifelong commitment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like any disease, as you can relate to as a doctor, it's, it's something that has to be treated and taken care of for life. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing. I know it's got to be tough. Um, It's been less than a year. Here we are at the holidays where we know um, we kind of experience the loss of a loved one even more profoundly during the holidays because we miss them at our holiday table and coming up on a one-year anniversary. Um, But praise God that you're taking that pain and, as you said, channeling it into purpose and trying to educate and inspire people today and going forward. So I thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. And Matthew, you're a professional in the area of addiction and mental health, but you knew Raymond as well. You were a personal friend, a lifelong childhood friend. That's correct. And I was just as shocked um, when I saw the news that he had passed, although I knew he was struggling. And, um, you know, truth be known, I'm a person in recovery too, long term. Uh, Ray and I were best friends for most of our lives. He was like a brother to me, and 
So we were exposed to a lot of the same things at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that I, I'm 100% sure that was part of it. So we were using marijuana and drinking alcohol, you know, around 10 or 11 years wow. old. Um, it, it progressed. And I think to support what Lorraine said, you don't, when you look back, you know, after something's happened, the sort of pieces come together. And it was clear that this was a progression. Um, him and I were on the same path. I was um, fortunate enough to get into some, get the help that I needed. Um, and we sort of split ways at that point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, it's, it's, it's tragic that, that sort of I made it out and he didn't mm-hmm. um, when we were both pretty much on the same track. Yeah. yeah. And so from a very young age, 11, was it um, being exposed to it kind of um, in the neighborhood at school and it was kind of a cool thing to try? Because that's so young. I mean, that might be an eye-opener for some of our parents who are listening right now to think, you know, oh, it's not until the teenage years in high school that I have to worry about my kids being exposed yeah. to drugs. But And this was, you know not just a couple years ago. I don't, I don't know yeah. uh, your age. I won't uh, call you out on the radio, but it wasn't just in the last five or 10 years. Yeah. So how much more exposed are our kids today? Well, I mean, it was the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was pretty normalized. I mean, I grew up in basically inner city Denver on the East side. And um, there were people that had alcohol out in the in the alleys and in the streets and they had no problem sharing it with us and it was also in our home mm-hmm. and I then I moved to um, Aurora and was in a completely different demographic basically the suburbs at that time and um, same thing mm. very normalized marijuana was read- readily available at school uh, most people you know had access to it from their families or their homes and drinking was also um, pretty normalized and pretty easy to access, even though none of us were of age. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, things have changed. I mean, that was, you know, a long time ago. My guess is that there's even more, um, options and access to, to substances for, for young people now. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about opioids, um, because that's kind of on everyone's radar today, recently declared a national crisis in our country. Uh, Let's start, uh, Matthew, with helping people understand um, what are opioids to begin with. I even have a hard time saying that word, (laughs) opioid. Uh, What is that and kind of what would be examples that we would recognize? Yeah, so they're, I mean, they're a class of drug that basically act on the opioid receptors in the brain. Um, They're synthetic opioids and then natural ones. So um, synthetic would be like oxycodone, fentanyl, th- drugs like that. And then um, heroin is obviously not, um, you know, a pharmaceutical drug. But I think there's two things that we're seeing happen here. One of them is that it was the, the prescription um, uh, opioids have been sort of wrangled in. And so there's been a squeeze on that because of the... Um, over-prescribing and sort of, you know, doctors were sort of getting identified as the culprits in some of this. Mm-hmm. But as a result of that, the access to the pharmaceutical opiate, you know, opiates has gone down, which um, now you have uh, addicted people that are turning to things like heroin and other drugs mm-hmm. to to supplement that. So that's one um, sort of trend we're seeing in this crisis. I think the other thing is it was declared a national emergency, but that was it. I mean, 
there was no follow-up to that. I mean, it's almost like saying a house is on fire but mm. not calling the fire department. So there, there, there really is a, an emergency, but there hasn't been a real follow-up to that as far as services go mm-hmm. or access to services. Right. Yeah. And so I know, Lorraine, that's part of your purpose and mission. That We'll get into that and talk more about uh, what resources are currently available and what you're doing to help people gain greater access to those. Uh, so opioids are really, um, uh, in terms of the prescription uh, medication, it's for pain. Yeah. So there's yeah. some folks who, you know, because we can label people and judge people who are using heroin, you know, but what about just the average person who has a back injury? They work hard every day. They throw their back out. They get prescribed a painkiller and become addicted to it. We're going to talk a little bit more about that after the break of how it acts on our, our brain and our body and the legitimate uses for prescription drugs and how things go awry. How does someone uh, become addicted and now they're also seeking heroin and other drugs um, and going downhill and, and potentially overdosing? My guests today are Lorraine Hoover and Matthew Jarvis, and we're talking about this opioid crisis in America. But we're offering hope today, information and inspiration. Please stay with us. We'll be back after the break. Are you prepared for a sudden cardiac arrest? Having an AED is simply not enough. School athletic coaches are required to have CPR and AED training, but they can only save a life with properly functioning and maintained equipment. Maintain compliance and reduce your liability with AED program management from SSI Guardian. Buy an AED and receive a two-year management program for free. Call us today at 877-878-5800 or visit us at SSIGuardian.com. You can learn a lot about yourself and God from a dog. When her children asked for a dog, this mom got them gerbils. So imagine their surprise, and hers, when she adopted an abandoned dog that she met in Dallas, Texas, just one day after her divorce. In a way that only God could orchestrate, her spur-of-the-moment decision to take in a little dog she named Dallas was just the beginning of a seven-year journey that transformed her life and taught her to see herself and God in a whole new light. Read Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog, a delightful and heartwarming book by psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Part memoir, part Christian inspiration, Doggy Tales is a must-read for anyone who wants to learn to recognize God's voice, even in the most unlikely places. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll love Doggy Tales. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. Welcome back, everyone. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg, and I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. We're coming to you from Denver, Colorado, on KLZ 560 and streaming online from drpegradio.com. We're brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. To learn more, go to ssiguardian.com. 
Now, as we're approaching the end of the year, you may be feeling like you didn't accomplish everything you set out to accomplish this year. If you're feeling stuck, ready for change, and need some help with strategies and a jump start, today is the last day to register for my Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat. It's this Saturday, December 30th. 2017 in Denver, Colorado. Space is very limited, so go to drpegradio.com slash retreat to register today. Well, I'm happy to have my guest today in studio with me, Lorraine Hoover, founder of the Raymond Roundtree Jr. Foundation, and Matthew Jarvis, a licensed addiction counselor and manager of clinical operations at UC Health Cedar uh, at University of Colorado Medical Center or Hospital. Uh, listeners, you can join the conversation and ask Lorraine and Matthew a question about opioid addiction. If you have a family member or yourself are struggling with addiction, give us a call today at 303-477-5600. Now, Lorraine and Matthew, thank you so much again for being here. How can listeners get in touch with you, Lorraine, learn more about your foundation um, and even make a donation. We'll talk about what some fundraising that you have coming up. Sure, thank you. So we actually have um, a website, and so you can go to www.sosrrjrfoundation.org, and there we kind of have launched um, a lot of resources, mm -hmm. um, and one of them being Cedar, who is our um, our primary sponsor for um, this foundation. And um, then we have also um, Cycle Bar. Um, again, the focus of the foundation is mind, body, and soul. Those are the key that for all of us to have a balance in life that we struggle with. And when those are out of sync, then we're off. Mm -hmm. And we try to fill it with something else, which can be drugs, yes. can be, you know, addictive shopping, eating, etc. Mm -hmm. And so um, we also, you know, I've also um, been sponsored by legal counsel so that I'm making sure that I'm setting it up as a, a 501c3 foundation um, by City Park Law. And then um, the website itself was sponsored by... Um, Site uh, Bridge, uh, another individual based from Colorado. All of them are natives, which all of us are here are yeah. natives. So woo woo to the natives yes. of Colorado, <laughs> and uh, and all of them have kind of gone to other places. But our resources, which say, says a lot to Colorado and the fact that we grew up together, we've gone through trials and tribulations, but we're there to help each other and support each other through trials and tribulations yes, and grow together. Yeah. So um, going to the website and then also on Facebook. We're on Facebook as well. Okay. And um, and then we do have um, a phone number if you did need to call us, which is 720-354-7940. Um, Great. Thank you. And Matthew Jarvis, how can folks get in touch with you and learn more about your work at Cedar? Um, well, I mean, the easiest way is to call Cedar. Um, mm -hmm. We have people that work there in our admissions department and outreach department that are, you know, can provide uh, referrals and whatnot for different levels of care. So the number there is 720-848-3000. Um, and like I said, that's probably the best way to, to just come in contact with a provider. If not us, then, you know, we can contact, connect you with someone. And honestly, Google. Okay. You know, Google, there, yeah. there's, there's tons of um, facilities around the Denver metro area, um, including 12-step meetings that are basically all day, every day. No, mm -hmm. that's not professional treatment. However, it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's effective in terms of group support mm -hmm. and, and um, 
identification. So so we see people do well in groups, great, especially great. with addiction. Yeah. And we'll talk more about uh, resources and long-term recovery because yeah. that you're you're an example of that that started out on a similar path to Lorraine's brother and um, but diverged in a different direction into long-term recovery and even into the profession to help others. Uh, and listeners, I have links to both Lorraine and Matthew on my website. Go to drpegradio.com. Also, if you'd like to share this episode or any episode of the Living Well with Dr. Peg show, you can go to drpegradio.com to get uh, the program archives, and we'll have this show posted uh, later on today. Uh, also, listeners, if you'd like to call in, if you have a question um, about addiction, um, if you are struggling yourself or have a loved one and need some encouragement, please give us a call today, 303-477-5600. Uh, so, Matthew, let's talk more about how opioids affect the body, the brain, and, and the progression of addiction, uh, dependency and addiction. Sure. So, I mean, primarily they're used for pain, um, physical pain, and I think that uh, that can be a pathway to addiction. But the, the process is pretty similar with most uh, drugs of abuse. But um, if somebody is being prescribed opiates, I think that at the very least they should be provided uh, counseling or some sort mm. of guidance around safe and responsible use um, as well. And mm-hmm. so how this typically starts is through misuse, mm-hmm. most most abuse or uh, addictions start through misuse, which means they work for the pain, they do their job, and the person decides, well, if it worked for that, it'll work f- to help me sleep, mm. or it'll work for this other pain that I'm having, and then they're using it for all these other things. And in the meantime, this is having a neurological effect on their brain. Mm. And so, yeah, the the um, the phenomenon of tolerance occurs, which is you know a feature of addiction, a criteria, which means the person would have to use more and more of that substance to get mm. the desired result. And as that's going on, um, they also develop withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. And Talk so these, about that. So withdrawal symptoms are, you know, the person's no longer using the substance to to work for pain or or really to, some people use the substance just to, to be high, to feel mm. good, but that's no longer working. So the person is now using the substance to feel normal, mm. to feel okay, to feel well, if you will. And so that's those are sort of the um, gateways that people go through withdrawal intolerance to addiction. Mm. Once that starts to occur and the person's having physiological symptoms as a result of not having the drug in their mm-hmm. body, then then that's that's the process of addiction. Right. And then, you know, it's sort of a, there needs to be some interventions at mm-hmm. that point because um, and I'm talking about professional help mm-hmm. because now we're into um, this this progression. So things typically get worse from there. And I think Lorraine mentioned this functioning addict mm-hmm. uh, term. And I think that that's what happens is a lot of people are trying to manage this on their own and experiencing these symptoms. And by the time they actually get to a care provider or that it's made known, it's progressed to a point that it's fairly severe. Mm. And so... Yeah. yeah. And so some of those, uh, it's interesting what you're saying about needing more and more to get the same result and yeah. not feeling, might take it originally to get high, but over time as tolerance builds, you need it just to feel normal. And when you don't have it, you actually start feeling sick and That's vomiting, right. nausea, body aches, fatigue, that kind of thing, withdrawal symptoms, we call them. And so needing more and more and more just to feel normal is really 
changing, altering your, your brain and your body, isn't it? That's right. I mean, there's actual changes in the brain. And so, um, you know, neuroscience is obviously telling us a lot about this, things that we didn't know 20, 30 years ago, but it's, it's confirmed. And so, yeah, once these changes start to occur, um, again, professional help, structure, mm-hmm. you know, the, a person's going to need support at that point. It's, mm-hmm. It would be like trying to manage any other chronic health condition just on your own yeah. with no help. Yeah. And so... And so, Lorraine, you were saying seeing your brother, kind of that big red flag for you was him visiting you at uh, college and using by himself. And it wasn't a social recreational thing anymore. Um, Talk about that in light of what Matthew shared in terms of tolerance and withdrawal and just that progression. Some of the things now, of course... Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Right, right. And so you're asking me to go way back. So with mm-hmm. that, with that said, um, I will say this: that um, during that experience, it was kind of you know a fire hose for me. So I, you know, was in college. I was you know very focused on making change and having a voice. And so I spoke to my family, and it was all about you know we've got to get him help. There's something wrong. This isn't you know. And we go through and we get him into. Of course, funds are, are required to put. Some somebody into any, um, you know, facility. And so we do that. My parents do. And through that process, he then feels like I don't belong. I don't fit in. I'm not like everybody else. A majority of the people that were in the particular facility that he went to were people that, you know, were psychologically had, you know, issues um, or had been homeless because of their psychological issues or, you know, had been abandoned as children. Several different stories which didn't line up. It wasn't familiar familiar for him. So there becomes the functioning addict that, oh, I don't need this. I'm cool. I got this. Right. Mm. So for years, you know, his thought prospect to what Matthew was saying about the, um, you know, the thought process of trying to handle it on your own is he really felt like, I'm not like them. I can handle this. And it was, you know, something he had seen as children. Our our family was very, you know, well-to-do, um, but yet participated in different, you know, activities. And so it seemed to him that it was okay because everybody else was functioning. Mm. So it was normal. So by association, um, I'm okay because everybody else was okay. And, and not everybody swallows the same medication and gets the same results, right? right? And so through through that journey, he was associating himself as I needed to have it because it helps me communicate. It helps me relax when I talk to people. So if anybody is feeling that, if they're associating a high to a function of normalcy, that is a red flag. And fortunately for me, my number wasn't picked for that journey. Um, I had experienced in in college people participating and it was just not for me. Thank God, right? It wasn't my number that was picked that way. But I, for me, know that I have to find a balance and that was through filling my hole with Jesus Christ. So everybody would see that Lorraine would go get drunk, but if anything happened, we were going to pray. And so, you know what I mean? I found my way to an extreme, not perfect, but I, that was my source of strength, mm-hmm. right? And so in turn, in seeing him years later, you become numb as a family member because you've been rejected. So there were several times where 
other issues took where my sister and I are sitting down and talking to him. There's a couple pictures on, you know, the, the website when we did his memorial that are painful moments, you know, where he had participated in meth. And, you know, we have seen people die. Meth kills you. It's like you retire fastly. You know, you go through aging quickly. And so to just see that he was participating in something that was highly addictive and, you know, changing lives of teenagers where they look like they're 80 years old, those are things that were out of our control. And again, it goes back to the result of a person has to make that choice. They have to be willing to say, I want to change and um, praise the Lord for Matthew who did that. And his journey, um, as he can talk to was, you know, for him, it took, you know, him years where I believe that that's what my brother needed. And so that's why I think it's important for us when we deal with opioids, it's not something that you just quit. Mm -hmm. It is truly something that changes the substance of your body, your Mm -hmm. chemistry and such a way that even after being clean for six months, your body craves it. So then mentally you crave it. And for my brother, he was at this point in time in Mexico at our Acapulco home where we've grown up and he was celebrating life. And that's what we would do. We would go away. We'd work out. We'd start over as you're at the end of the year, getting rid of all the old stuff from this year and being ready to embrace the new opportunities in the year to come, being different, making better choices. And that's where he was right now today. That's where he was Mm -hmm. in Mexico talking and and putting it on Facebook about how he was thankful. And then to come back and that resistance where he thought he could self-medicate himself, he needed more, which then caused the overdose. So talk about that, Matthew. Um, Lorraine is bringing up several important things about self-medicating and coping and um, your body really is craving it and um, how how you and others can um, overcome that. Uh, People who are using these drugs as self-medication, can you say more about that? Well, yeah. I mean, it's something that we focus on in treatment is, is skills, coping skills, emotional regulation skills, things like that. I think that um, by the time somebody gets to treatment, they've, real, they've basically used the substance to deal with everything, with mm-hmm. life. And mm-hmm. so you take that away. I mean, sort of layman's terms is the drugs and alcohol weren't the person's problem. It was their solution. Right. And the problem with that is that the, that solution has stopped working and they can't stop using it. And so if we take the drugs away, um, you know, we need to be there with some solutions. And one of the things I wanted to sort of clear up, and it's going to contradict what you said, is um, this myth that's out there about the person needs to be on board and um, for it to work. Mm -hmm. And so like the NIDA principles, National Institute of Drug Abuse, they have these principles. You You can look it up. But one of them is that treatment does not have to be voluntary wow. to be effective. Wow. Um, you know, uh, family, employers, people can get on board and really um, guide this person into treatment, even if they're not even really into it. Mm-hmm. And as that brain, as their brain starts to heal, as things starts to change, that person will notice on their own that there's benefits to, 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 to change. And so I just wanted to kind of throw that out yeah, there because I know. think it's a common you know, conception that, yeah. that I mean, that's, that's that. critically important yeah. because there might be a loved one listening right now who was thinking there's nothing I can do. And yet there's plenty, especially yeah. if you can exert some uh, social pressure with the family, friends, um, and, uh, 
get that person in treatment, even if it's against their will. If they're showing that they're a danger to themselves, can't take care of themselves, we can compel them to treatment, right. can't we? We can do interventions. And I think uh, another important thing you st- that we see in treatment a lot is this um, this this notion that people uh, are maintaining jobs, functioning. Um, we see that a lot. A lot of times they're doing well in their careers. People that have addictions, you know, we have there's a stigma that you if you don't have a you know, brown paper bag with a forty, and you're homeless behind. Then, then, then that's what addiction means, and it's not. It's it's it people, you know, that you want. It's the police officer. It's the nurse. It's the doctor. It's mm. it's the counselor. It's all of us. And um, so, so performing at work or doing well in your career doesn't necessarily mean there's not a. When we start sort of digging into the relationships and the other things that are behind the scenes, there's evidence that there's problems here, and so. Another thing that I just wanted to, to speak to, and, and hopefully that'll help people understand that if, if somebody's doing well at work or able to maintain a job, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a problem. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good. Thank yeah. you for clarifying yeah. that and pointing that out. Uh, and I just want to um, uh, turn back briefly to something you said, Lorraine, because we're kind of seeing... On the one hand, um, we can compel someone to go into treatment, and we can bring our rally our families together and try to do an intervention. But at the same time, it, in the end, it really is going to be: Did that person respond in treatment? Because you yeah. shared earlier how you felt: Could I have done more? Uh, should I have done more? And that guilt that plagues us. So on the one hand, yes, there's a lot we can do, and that's why we're doing this show to educate people, inform them, and at the same time, some things you know, the bottom line is that person ultimately does have to respond to the treatment. That's right. Right, yeah. yes. Well, well, I think just mm-hmm. real quick, as providers, we have, you know, we're evolving, but we have to get better at um, educating and, and, and delivering a chronic care model so that people know that this isn't a, um, you know, a temporary situation in treatment, that a lot of times once you've crossed over, just like any other chronic illness, um, diabetes or asthma, this is going to require the person's um, maintenance of that condition for right. the rest of their lives. Right. And we'll, be, we'll get into that more after the break. Stay with us. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Do you ever make changes? But after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into old behaviors and patterns. If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. 
Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join psychologist, author, and transformation specialist, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark for a one-day, do-something-different-for-a-change personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Dr. Peg's Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat is coming to Denver on Saturday, December 30th. Go to drpegradio.com forward slash retreat to register today. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and my guests today are Lorraine Hoover, founder of the Raymond Roundtree Jr. Foundation, and Matthew Jarvis, licensed addiction counselor and manager of clinical operations at Cedar with the University of Colorado Hospital. And we're talking about opioid addiction and just so grateful to both Lorraine and Matthew for um, being transparent, sharing um, uh, what they've been through each. Um, Lorraine as a sister of her brother Raymond who passed away about a year ago uh, from an opioid overdose and Matthew Jarvis who is a professional in his own right and uh, also is in long-term recovery. So that's what I want to talk about in this last segment is... um, how can people get help? Where do they get help? And how do we keep someone in long-term recovery? Because we can certainly have some success short-term and then people uh, can relapse. And many folks are familiar with that term. But talk about where do we get help? How do we get help? And how do we stay in long-term recovery? Sure. So, um, you, I mean, honestly, there are barriers to, to help to people. And we, you know, that's part of the reason why I came in here and, and want to advocate that we, we, we need help. We need help politically and, and financially. People need help to get access to, to services. So one of the most effective treatments for a severe uh, substance dependence disorder is residential treatment mm-hmm. with um, uh, access to medication assisted treatment. So the, the, the truth is, um, you know, Medicaid does not cover residential um, and there's also other barriers to that. But what I've seen and what we know at Cedar is that treatment works, mm. is that people, get, once they're in, um, sort of introduced to the continuum of care, which is a, um, what Lorraine uh, alluded to, which is this sort of long-term step-down model, a decrease in, in, in services as the person starts to do better and better in a less um, structured environment, um, that's when we see the most success. So it, treatment engagement um, somewhere around a year or more mm. um, from a, you know, from a residential setting, which is basically like a rehab, um, you know, obviously with a medical detox at the beginning. And then they step down to partial hospitalization and then outpatient, intensive outpatient. Um, and this continuum is uh, anywhere from nine months to to a year. And then after that, there's... Um, you know, maintenance is what we call it by the person, which means they would, they, they at that point need to be engaged and in their own recoveries. And, and that includes like 12 step, um, you know, we see it as a, as a whole body illness. So that person would be, um, you know, engaged in, in expanding their spiritual lives, whatever that means for them, their, their physical health and their mental health, um, through, through community support and, and other means and as treatment providers, we are working with those folks to set that up. And so we see a, a life trajectory for the continuum. 
And so like myself, personal experience, I'm still involved in support groups and things like that because I know that that's, that, um, you know, addiction can also be a disease of isolation. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I'm not, um, connected to people, to other human beings that have a common goal and a common belief, um, I'm likely to fall back into it. And so, um, you know, relapse is real. It, it can be typically caused by stress. Whatever st- stressful events occur and that person's not a, in a position to um, respond effectively to it. Um, it but the, the preparation work is the maintenance because life is going to be stressful. Things are going to mm-hmm. happen. But I guess my point is, like, what was the person doing prior? Yeah. You know, what, what, that, that's going to kind of determine how you get through that. And one of the things that comes to mind is if someone is first introduced to substances at 10 and 11 and 12 years old before they, their brains have fully developed, yeah. before they have any measure of maturity, any measure of life skills, it seems like it would be a very long process of recovery because you're kind of maybe reparenting this um, person kind of filling in the gaps even in their development from a very young age. That's right. I mean, recovery is not only learning new things, it's unlearning. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some of us, it's a lifetime of um, behaviors and beliefs and, and notions that we have that guide our our values and mm-hmm. whatnot. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty lengthy unpacking process, um, but it also can be a beautiful process. I think that people find themselves in the recovery right. and they, they do a lot of healing, not just from the addiction, but from, from life traumas and other things that have happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is a message of hope. There's an end game here where this um, recovery uh, or this dark addiction can actually be the doorway to, um, to some freedom that maybe that person has never known. Right, yeah. right. So. And we talk about post-traumatic growth. You mm-hmm. know, um, post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental disorder after someone experiences a trauma. And there's also the opportunity for someone to grow beyond yeah. a trauma. And it sounds like that's certainly an opportunity. We know God works all things together for our good. Yeah. And so we can have this um, horrific, you know, trajectory in life that really can turn around for our good. That's right. And the brain, the body has a tremendous capacity to heal itself. And if it's in the right conditions around in in the right situations, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. And so we see brains, you know, people's brains literally healing and then their lives and their spirits healing and families as a result. And sometimes it's that one person, you know, the, the, we conceptualize addiction as a symptom of a family Mm -hmm. uh, situation or an issue. And that person starts on a recovery journey that actually is the catalyst for the whole family going wow. through a healing process. Yeah, so. yeah. What I've heard someone refer to that as the symptom bearer in the family. Yeah. There's a dynamic in the family, and uh, the one person who gets scapegoated might actually be the hero, the That's one right. person courageous enough to kind of say, hey, something's wrong here, mm-hmm. and how that person's um, pain can also, as you said, be used to, to benefit the family. And sounds like that's kind of something that's happening in your family is that for you, at least personally, you're taking this pain and turning it into purpose, as you said. Yes, I would agree. I think um, what's been amazing in this journey, I think, which started, I want to say in June or July when I called you, Matthew, and asked if 
fentanyl is an opioid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't even know, um, but I knew that that was the autopsy of my brother and uh, mixed with cocaine. And so I was like, that was, is that it? And um, then Matt was like, yeah. And I was like, well, we need to do something. <laughs> and Matt's like, well, maybe I can get cedar. And it just all kind of came together. So through that, I think um, for, for me, Um, And for my family, I've had the opportunity to do educational speaking at their health class. My daughter's at Overland, where uh, Matthew graduated. Overland. (laughs) And um, had the opportunity, was allowed to come in and speak to my daughter's health class. And my daughter... She openly talks about it because we're openly talking about it in our household. Yeah, so so we're, you were, uh, my family has come together and we're having meetings about, you know, how to put something out there that is, um, you know, for underprivileged people. And even though they said that, yes, it's an epidemic, where are the funds for it? They're not there. So how are we going to get the funds? Where is the, the actual uh, communication coming together? So through that, I've learned that, you know, the the state of Colorado and the city are working to figure out how to pull things together to make a pilot that can allow it to start from, if you have a police record, the physicians know that. So they know this person has an addictive, you know, personality or a record. So you don't want to prescribe them something that's going to cause them to go to the level where my brother went. And so those are things that are in progress. Um, We have a ways to go, but it's for me, I've reached out to um, the Denver Police Department and have been blessed with the opportunity for a narcotics um, individual to speak at the event that we're going to have to educate us on what they see out there and where it comes from. And I think as a whole, the community's eyes to be open. I think we shut the door too often and just think it's just my household when Mm -hmm. it is, it's a national crisis. And for me, I think that um, my, my daughter, um, she's spreading the word at her school. Um, Her friends are talking about it at the age of 16. Excellent. Because we know they're being exposed to drugs earlier than we like to think. Right. Mm -hmm. And and my son is up in college, um, you know, down at CSU Pueblo. And so he's dealing with it and my nephews at CSU. So they are all, you know, passionate about this themselves mm-hmm. because it they would there was somebody that they knew. Yes. And yeah. instead of <clears throat> just saying, oh, well, we lost him at the age of 44 and just closing the book. My brother had a big personality and he affected all of us in that way. And anyone that knew him, he did. And so I can't I couldn't. There was something more for him to say. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, make sure you reach out and have younger people. People receive the help or be encouraged that there is help. And and the bottom line is, you know, we're all dirty. All of us have our dirty issues, if you will. But God is always there even through the mess. And even though if you feel alone and you're not in a place where, you know, nobody wants to talk to you or you're shameful, because I think that's the biggest thing with my brother that I noticed was the shame. Shame, yeah. The guilt of, um, you know, I can't quit or I don't have control of this. That allows you to then even hide more or isolate yourself. And so... I'm not sure where you wanted me to go, but I'm going there. (laughs) So 
So with yeah. that said, that's yeah. kind of the, the journey of opening eyes and, mm-hmm. and being aware. And so this is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm hoping that those that are, are hearing that need help will reach out. Those that, you know, have overcome would dive in to, you know, b- encourage others. Yeah. There's been many people that um, I, we have a blog now, Zena Dyson, who was an old um, high school friend who had, you know, went astray on her own journey, who has come back and her testimony is she didn't go to rehab. She just went to Jesus and he has, she's been, you know, sober for five plus years. Everybody has a different journey and that was hers. And now she's, you know, doing blogs for this event and her voice is being heard. And that's her way of staying in recovery is having a testimony and speaking to it. So it's just touching so many people in ways I had no idea it would. And that's a beautiful thing and honors your brother's memory and legacy. And so um, we're we're talking about kind of the holistic um, wraparound kind of lifetime maintenance and and growth um, and even fulfillment of your ultimate destiny, who you were meant to be, even through this tragic addiction. And so, uh, Lorraine, you have started a foundation in your brother's name and memory, the Raymond Roundtree Jr. Foundation, Colorado nonprofit dedicated to providing affordable, as we've talked about, transitional, uh, sustainable wraparound services. That's what we're talking about. Body, mind, spirit, financial, medical, counseling, everything. And as you described, Matthew, kind of stepping it down as people are moving on that path to recovery. Um, providing those services to the individuals and the family members who are impacted by this addictive uh, drug use. So talk about the event that you have coming up uh, in January. Um, You're sending out an SOS. (laughs) I am. I'm sending out an SOS. Interesting enough, as you can relate to this, um, Dr. Pegg, is I was searching at this time. I'm always searching and asking the Lord, so what is the focus for 2018? Mm. And I did the same thing for 2017, and he gave me SOS. Mm. And so um, at that point in time, this was, of course, before my brother had passed, it was, you know, seeking um, the face of the Lord to overcome Satan. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the focus of what I received. And I yeah. thought I was going to minister that somewhere. I had the word, I was studying yeah, it. Yeah. And so it never came. So then my brother passes and that throws a loop in everything. Mm-hmm. For me, it shifts, of course, it changes. And I, death, you can't, it doesn't have an agenda. It just is what it is. Um, and losing someone, I, I can't describe it for anybody because everybody, it's different. Um, some days it feels like it's a hurricane. Some days it, it can be sweet. So it just depends. So through that, the SOS um, turned into spin for sensibility, for spin for opioid sensibility and a memorial event where my brother and I used to always like in Acapulco, there's lots of hills in the area where my mom has a home and we used to always run the hill and we would challenge each other who can get to the hill first. And so one of the pieces on his memorial, you see us at the top of the hill and he's kind of talking and I was videoing him um, and he's motioning and that's, we made it to the top. And so um, that was kind of, we'd go and see the ocean and it would be, that's life crashing on the rocks. That's how we get beat up in life, okay? Because it's tough for all of us. But we can look, if we look above 
every situation in our life and we look above it, you can see the beauty that there is something more out there, that this is just a moment in time. It's not a lifetime where you're at. It's just that moment. So what can you do to make a difference? And so the SOS Foundation is basically um, to spend for sensibility. So um, I went to a spin class down the street from my job, which is Cycle Bar in Longtree, and they had a sign up that said that they sponsor fundraisers. And I had been doing a lot of volunteer of a America fundraisers for women in shelters, and I felt there was a shift, and this was my opportunity to kind of um, take it to another level because um, the endorphins, everybody is on their phones and they get their endorphins met, right? And we know that uh, social media has our endorphins going to a default, if we will. And so with that, I've, I was like, you know, when I work out, that's what gets me going. Mm-hmm. When I am, you know, truly pushing to the next level of when my body feels like it just can't do anymore and I do it and then I get all those nasty toxins for all the stuff I ate the day before out, mm-hmm. <laughs> then I feel released, right? So I was like, that's what my brother and I used to do. And I know if he was here, that would be something just because yeah. he was speedy. It was everything that had to be fast, a motorcycle. I mean, that was mm-hmm. the kind of person he was. So this class, um, the cycle bar is basically going to take place on as a memorial on January the 20th, a Saturday at one o'clock. And if you go to the website, you can um, sign up if you're not a spinner and just want to get in shape. A great way to kick off your year to mm-hmm. start those goals. Yeah. Um, and then also an opportunity. You know, it's very inspiring. It's a group of people that are working for a same goal, different ages, groups, ethnicities, just yeah. working for a goal. And this goal is to raise funds to create a scholarship to fund um, one individual uh, for a 12 week intensive outpatient program. Um, so that they can then also receive out of that the the support as a family for a family mm-hmm. that's going through mm-hmm. it as well as the individual. And then um, Cycle Bar, we have also the Phoenix, we have a Cedar that are donating for those that are underprivileged Excellent. for it to be a discount. So please come out and yes. join us. Absolutely. So SOS, Spin for Opioid Sensibility, the first annual Raymond Roundtree Jr. Fundraiser on Saturday, January 20th, 2018 at the Cycle Bar in Lone Tree. And just a great opportunity to learn more about the opioid epidemic in an atmosphere that stimulates physical and mental Uh, well-being. People will be riding stationary bikes inside for up to 60 minutes. Yes. Come on out. Let's see if you can handle it. And they'll be... Uh, able to take donations for every mile that yes. they ride as well. So even if folks don't want to ride, they right. can donate and sponsor someone like you who's going to be, I'm sure, putting in a lot of miles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Thanks. Well, my guests uh, have been uh, Lorraine Hoover and Matthew Jarvis. Uh, thank you so much for opening up and sharing uh, what I know is a painful uh, loss for both of you. Uh, But we're hoping that um, our listeners have been informed and inspired and that you're turning this pain into purpose. So, Lorraine Hoover, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. My honor, Peggy. And Matthew Jarvis, thank you as well. Thank you. And I'm uh, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. Tune in every Thursday, 1 to 2 on KLZ 560 or drpegradio.com. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Pegg. 
For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.